0: I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Micah, curveball, Micah chapter 6, and uh, when you find Micah chapter 6, I want you to hold that spot and then I want you to find Isaiah 55, Micah 6 and Isaiah 55. Thank God for coffee, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, ask, the Lord, that your word would uh, be unto us living. Uh, we know, Father, that, that uh, we don't read ink on paper. We read the word of God, uh, the Holy Spirit, inspired, taught, uh, living word. Uh, and so, Father, uh, we just ask that you would give us, Lord, a sensitivity to that same spirit, the spirit that inspired uh, these words, made the same spirit teach us these words, apply these words uh, to our, our lives, to our church. Father to, to our minds tattoo them on our, our minds Lord that uh, we might put on these these um, these glasses of truth when we look out at others and the world so Father we ask you uh, guide us today come Holy Spirit, do what only you can do through your word we ask it in Jesus name amen Daniel Meyer tells the story of an elderly woman who heard a sermon in which she felt God encouraging her to to look for ways in which she could use her particular gifts and situation to minister to the needs of others. She was like so many other Christians who wanted to do something, but really didn't know what to do. So she thought about her gifts and realized that she'd been told by others that she had the gift of hospitality. What do you do with the gift of hospitality and how in the world can you turn that into a a mission and she lived alone in a very small apartment to top things off however there was a large university that was very close to her house and so she pondered uh, the needs around her and the the young people who who began to tug at her heartstrings she began to have a, a desire and a passion to reach these kids And so she began to think of these students, and an idea came to her mind, and she thought, man, that is a weird idea, that's a strange idea, Uh, it's a simple idea, Uh, and she tried to talk herself out of it, but she decided, why not? And so she took a, a stack of three by five cards, and she wrote on one side of the card, are you homesick? And on the other side of the card she put her name and her address and she said come by for tea at 4 p.m on a certain day and she put her phone number her address and and she posted the cards all around the campus well at first nobody came and was kind of slow but then all of a sudden homesick students began trickling into her house Uh, One, and then a a couple more, and then a, a small group began to emerge. When she died, 10 years later, there were 80 honorary pallbearers who attended her funeral. Each one of them had been a student who at one time found a hot cup of tea, a sense of home, and the gospel of Jesus and the hospitable heart of a faithful servant. I I love that story because it reminds me of, of what the church is and what the church is for. Every single person that we meet, every single one, whether you know it or not, is homesick. Every single one of us. We're homesick for home, we're homesick for Eden, for the garden paradise. That our first ancestors were booted out of and our job as believers in Christ is to provide people with a little slice of home uh, to give them a, a taste of Eden a reminder of that which is good and true and beautiful and we all have this in us this innate longing for these things Even the Greek philosophers of old were able to tap in on the reality of of humanity and its human longing for these three things. And every week it seems that someone these days is is writing a new book uh, about millennials and Gen Z. Uh, They're coming out of the woodworks and most of the books, uh, as they're geared towards church are focused on things like deconstruction and why is there this mass exodus of young people that are are leaving uh, the church in droves. And I could spend uh, really hours, because I've read a lot of those books, I want to know. I could spend hours telling you about why most of these experts... Uh, are, are saying that this is happening. Why they're leaving. What is this alarming trend all about? And uh, we can look at what the experts are saying, but it seems to me like an elderly woman whose name is anonymous, as far as I, I don't know what her name was, but it seems to me like an elderly woman had it figured out a long time ago. Uh, just give them a taste Of home. There's this ancient passage uh, spoken by a Hebrew prophet. uh, And though it's an ancient text, it never gets old. It's as relevant today as the day that he spoke it. And I think many of you will recognize it. The passage is in Micah chapter 6, and specifically it's in verse 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, "O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Well, we're at the halfway point in our study of the book of Hebrews, and so I thought uh, it might uh, require us, it might be a good idea for us to have like a halftime. And in a halftime, you make halftime adjustments. And so that's what this is. We're going to look at Micah 6 and and Isaiah 55 to make some adjustments before we get to the second half of the book of Hebrews. And so Micah 6, 8 seems like a really good place to to do that, to make some adjustments. The prophet Micah is talking to a, a group of Israelites, to Hebrew people, And his task, given to him by God, is to prepare those people uh, to go into exile. Uh, Some of the prophets you read about are on the other end of the exile. They get to talk about the things that are coming as the people leave Babylon, like in the book of Ezra. But but here, uh, it's on the front end. And, And Micah is going, all right, here's the thing. You guys are about to go into Babylon. You're about to go into captivity Uh, You're going to spend a few generations there. Uh, Here's some things that God wants you to do and to be like when you're in captivity. Three things. Number one, do justice. Number two, love kindness. Number three, walk humbly with your God. They are to do those things not in the comforts of Jerusalem but right square in the middle of a strange land and culture. This is how they were to give the Babylonian people and the next generation of their own a slice of the home that they were going to leave behind. He, God, has told you, O man... The word man here is very interesting in Hebrew because it's the word or the name Adam, Adam in Hebrew. He is reminding them. He's not directing uh, his word to a specific man when it says, oh, man. Uh, He is reminding the people of where they got their start. Back in the garden, back in Eden, to God's uh, original design For humanity. And since we are all descendants of Adam, uh, that means that this is instructive to us as well. This is what he has told you, descendants of Adam. That's mankind. And he has told you what is good. Well, the Hebrew word for good or pleasurable. Uh, means to experience what is good or pleasurable in a physical way. It means to see the good with your eyes. It means to taste the good. It means to hear the good, audibly hear good things. In other words, it's what's good to the senses. It's very physical. It's not just some kind of you know philosophical good ideal. It is, it is, he has told you how to live in such a way that people see you and see the good in you and find pleasure in that. It's the exact same word, ironically, that is used in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 when Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Look at that passage Genesis 3:6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, For food and pleasing to the eye. Good, pleasing, same word. Uh, And desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate it. Now obviously, again, the wording here is intentional. It is meant to take us back to the garden. Uh, This time, we are to remember what was lost at the garden. And what can be regained. Uh, this is a, a boots on the ground spirituality. Uh, this is spirituality that can be perceived with the senses. This is street-level spirituality. And specifically, they're to live this street-level spiritual, spirituality out on the streets of Babylon. In a foreign, godless culture. And so there's these three things that the Lord desires. Of his people. How do you live at that street level? What are the things that you're to be doing that expresses to people who don't know God what God is like through the way that you live your life? And these three things, as we see in the text, we're going to look at one at a time. These three things the Lord desires for his people. They answer uh, the question, What does the Lord require of you? And then you have these three things. By the way, the Hebrew word for require means to seek. In other words, we could say this is what the Lord seeks for you. This is what the Lord desires for you. I I like that better than the translation of this is what the Lord requires. Require sounds, well, that's law. And let's not make this mistake of, of thinking that God requires us to do these things in order to be saved. We only have one requirement for that. John 6, 28 29, they asked him, Jesus, what must we do to do the work that God requires? What does God require of us? And Jesus said this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's what God requires, right? Trust in Jesus. But God seeks for you. He desires for, for you after you have become a follower of Christ to display these three characteristics that are pleasing to the eyes of those who watch us and the world is watching. So let's look at them. They're imperatives, three imperatives. Uh, In the Hebrew text, incidentally, the order of the list is reversed from what we have here in our English translation. Now, I prefer the Hebrew text and the order of the text, because it makes more sense of the flow of thought. I don't know why we do this in English, uh, but we just do. Uh, When you read Hebrew, Hebrew runs the opposite direction on the page than when we read it. And so maybe it's just simply a a grammatical kind of thing. So the first thing, then, if we're going to look at this from the Hebrew perspective... The first thing that we are called to do is to walk humbly with God, to walk humbly with God. Now you'll recall that Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the garden prior to the fall. Uh, they would walk with God in, in the cool of the day and one day when God came to find them, he came walking and said, "Where's my walking partners?" and And they were hiding from him. We're told, by the way, that when Christ returns, that the entire world is going to be turned into Eden once again. It won't be just a a place in the world. It will be the entirety of the world. Which means, by the way, the most incredible part of that is that we will get to walk with God in the same way that, that Adam and Eve did before they got booted out of the garden. We were made for that. And we were made to walk with God like that. And through Christ, we're able to walk with God again. But it's not now what it will be. The Bible says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. The day is coming when we'll walk by sight. For now, we have to walk according to faith. And so until then, until we see everything that our eyes were were made to see, when we see God, when we see the face of Christ, when we behold Him and become like Him, when we see Him, the Bible says that until then, we are looking into a mirror dimly. That's that's like a piece of, of uh, brass that's kind of polished, but your image is distorted. And so there are things about God, when we look at God, when we think about theology, when we think about, you know, the things that are happening in our world, there are things about God that just don't make sense. Because we're not capable of understanding the infinite or the wisdom of God. I mean, we're... We're finite beings, right? We're fallen beings. But that's part of what it means to walk humbly, right? To, to recognize that. And so we walk humbly with God. It means we trust Him while we're still in Babylon, because there had to be a lot of questions going into Babylon and going, what in the world? Oh, man, we had it so good in Jerusalem, and now we're here. Uh, we know from the Psalms that the people, when they got there, were so discouraged that they, they wouldn't worship. They hung up their harps. They were just like, just so depressed. And, and so God was like, man, No, man, I'm, I'm, I'm the same God in Babylon as I was in Jerusalem. So, what does it mean, therefore, to, to walk with God? What does that mean? It's a phrase we like to throw around a lot in church. Uh, we've all heard the phrase, well, how's your walk with God? Uh, But do we understand what it means? Well, the word walk is used to describe our way of life. And so it it means that we are doing life with God. It it means that we walk with Him, which means we are in close proximity to Him as we live life daily. Daily. The Bible says of uh, people like Enoch that he walked with God. I love that passage. Enoch walked with God and he was no more. Uh, Moses is said to have walked with God. He's also said to be the most humble man who's ever lived and he walked with God. We are called in the New Testament to walk according to the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit. So walking with God, uh, really what it, what it comes down to, what it boils down to is walking with God means enjoying God. Enjoying His presence. His, his company. I just want to hang out with the God of heaven. In the book of, uh, well not the book of Romans, in, in the Romans in, in uh, the Gospels were told uh, could, uh, could go up to anybody on the streets of Jerusalem because they had invaded the city. And, and they could go up to anybody. You know, you're on your way to work and you're just minding your own business and they could look at you and go, hey, you, I need you to carry my armor. I need you to carry my, my pack. I need you to carry all my stuff. weighs about 75 pounds. And according to the Roman law, you, you had to carry that. You couldn't argue with them. That wouldn't go well. And you would have to carry that up to a mile. After a mile, you could throw it down on the ground and say, all right, I've gone a mile. Jesus said, go two. And and so that would have been a really unpleasant walk, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, you think there's every conversation that was was really positive? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So how's your day going? You know, that, that would have been a very unpleasant walk. In the case of Jesus, the exact opposite is the case. In Jesus, he says, let me carry your stuff. In fact, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, here's the invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, yoke is what hooked up two two oxen together. And Jesus is like going, let me carry the load. Uh, Let me be the one who, you just kind of stay next to me. You walk with me, and I will take the brunt, the heaviness of the load. So we should all ask ourselves this question, does our walk with Christ feel like we're carrying a heavy load, or does it feel uh, light, like we've had an easy burden or a heavy burden removed? Because if, if, if our walk with Christ feels kind of like we're bearing a heavy load, it may not be Jesus we're walking with. Walking with Jesus is, is a, it's a light walk. It's an enjoyable walk. It's also a daily walk. right? It says that we are to walk with Jesus. It's not a pause. It's a walk. right? We don't, we don't pause. We don't say, all right, well, Jesus wants us to humbly pause once a week on Sunday morning. No, it's a walk. That's, that's daily reality. It means that we walk with him wherever we go. We go with Christ. When you wake up in the morning and you go to work, you walk into the front door of your workspace, you walk in with Christ. When you go to school, you walk into your classroom with Christ. It's movement. We walk with Him. Check this out. 1 John 2.6 Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Man, there's a lot going on in that verse. A lot that, that communicates to us what it means to actually walk with Christ. Notice the implications here. Uh, if I am commun- in communion with Christ, if I am abiding with him, which I do practically through, through prayer, through, through being formed by the word of God, by me intentionally... Focusing on his presence. Then I began to walk in the same way that he walked. Or or maybe, perhaps, to put it another way, when I walk with Jesus, I begin to walk like Jesus. I I think the term walking uh, is also meant to convey kind of a slowness, right? A slowness of pace. Uh, it's a steadiness, of course. We're not to run. Right? This, is, this is radically countercultural in a fast-paced world, this idea of walking with Jesus. But the idea here is that we need to learn to slow down in the midst of this crazy world in order to find time to walk with Jesus. Right? We don't get way out in front of him. We don't lag way behind him. We walk with him, which means that he decides the pace. And and yet, uh, walking means, like I said, it means moving. It's not static. God's always taking us somewhere. Uh, Specifically, he's ultimately walking us home. But he also walks us on the way home. He walks us to where he's working and then invites us to join him there. So uh, that, by the way, makes the humble part almost redundant. Because here's the thing, man, is nobody with with pride walks with God. I I love that we're told here to walk with God. I love that God walks. I love that he's not in a hurry. I love the fact that my sanctification is a slow work of God in me. Sometimes I wish he would kind of hurry up a little bit but he takes his time. Walking also means slowing my pace to the speed of God's pace, right? And and so that's constantly just going, all right, my thing is to walk with him. I'm not trying to get him to walk with me. Uh, I'm called to follow him. He's never called to follow me. Uh, How could I be humble and demand that he follow me? All right, Lord, here's my plan. Here's my strategy. Here's where I'm going. Let's go. He's like, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Here's my plan. Here's my strategy. Now you come and follow me. And so uh, we, we walk with God. Uh, And and notice, remember where this happens, right? We're called to walk with him in Babylon. I think one of the reasons that young people are leaving the church is because they have had so little exposure to people who are truly walking with God. I really believe that. that. They've tasted what Luther called the Babylonian captivity of the church. They've seen too many people who who claim to know God, who claim to walk with God, and, and yet they're just as worldly as everyone in the world. If you want to see what walking humbly with God looks like, then one of the best places you can go is the book of Daniel. I love the book of Daniel because there you'll find Daniel and you'll find his his friends uh, literally living out their lives in captivity in Babylon. And when you watch them, when you read through them, you will notice that they excel there. They're, They're not of the idea of going, well, we're in the world, we're going to go hide our ourselves from the world. No, they're excelling in Babylon. They're at the top of their class in the university. I mean, they're killing it there. And yet, they never lose sight of who they are or where they came from, right? They refuse to become nationalists who are going to just simply go around going, hey, you know, they're not out there going. uh, Nebuchadnezzar for king. Uh, they, They eat a different diet. They're still... Different. They're, they're a part, they're in it, but they're not of it. And so they, they won't bow to the cultural idols of the day. And, and the young people look at the church and they're going, why is everything that's happened in the world seem to also be happening in the church? It's just as messy inside as it is outside. But young people need to see see, taste, hear, those who have gone before them act like our citizenship is in heaven rather than in the world. How can we help them with their homesickness if we are at home in the world? (laughs) Right? And here's the thing. Everything Everything flows out from our walk with God. Everything. That's why I believe that the order should be reversed as it is in the Hebrew text. All right? The other things are an outflow of our walk with God. And so let's look at the next thing on the list love, kindness. Love, kindness. The word translated here as, as kindness is one of my f- favorite uh, Hebrew words. It's the word chesed. Uh It is trans- sometimes translated as mercy. Sometimes it's translated as loving kindness. We kind of have a bit of an issue with it because there's not an English equivalent to the word, Hebrew word in, in our uh, vocabulary. And so we have all kinds of translations for it. Uh, It appears 250 times in the Old Testament, most of that in the book of Psalms. Michael Card, the uh, musician slash theologian, explains the word like this. He said, Hesed is the defining characteristic of God. It is linked to his compassion and graciousness. It expressed in his willingness to forgive wrongdoing and to take upon himself the sin, rebellion, and wrongdoing of his people. In the Hebrew mind, chesed is always something you do. It's a verb. It is loading wounded people on donkeys, running to greet runaway children, forgiving enormous debts, paying someone who worked an hour as much as the ones who worked all day, giving a party to those who can't pay you back. It is a resonant response to overwhelming kindness of God. I love that. We see the implications of the word "hased" in Moses' speech, or God's speech to Moses in Exodus 34. After God passed by Moses, He says this: Exodus 34: 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, "The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in hased." Steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping chesed. Steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who all will by no means clear the guilty. So here chesed is translated in the English as steadfast love and it's associated with his mercy and his grace and his patience and his Justice. In the Garden of Eden we're told that Adam and Eve were, were naked and unashamed. There was no shame because there was no sin. After the fall, you remember what they did? right The man and the woman are filled with sin, therefore they're filled with shame and then they hide from one another and they hide from God. We've been doing that ever ever since then. God, desires to heal that in us. He desires to heal our our shame to cover our nakedness. But in this finger-pointing world, we have this longing uh, for the peace of Eden, freedom from that, freedom from hiding, freedom from, from shame, from faking, from posing. God desires to heal that in us. Jesus said this, he said, in the last days, the love of most will grow cold. I think we're living in those days, don't you? We're more divided than ever. There is a premium shortage on kindness. There's a lot of things that we're short on. You know, every week it's like, oh, eggs are now $10. I think one of the greatest shortages in our country is kindness. Kindness. Social media has apparently given everyone permission to be unkind, right? Anyone and everyone uh, is able to express their opinions with no repercussions whatsoever. So things that we would never say to another person's face, all of a sudden we have the boldness to express our our, our words, our our negative uh, put-downs to absolute strangers. And people who think different than us, they just become fair game. And so what happens in, in the church? When, when in the church uh, we, we stop kindness. We fail to love and kindness. Does that not obscure the message we, we proclaim? And trust me, I'm stepping all over my own toes But when we're unkind as as God's people, we're unkind to Democrats. We're unkind to to gays. We're unkind to people who, who have different color skin than we do. When we're unkind to the uneducated, the kid with tattoos from head to toe and a thousand piercings. When we're unkind to the physically or mentally handicapped, to Muslims, to atheists, The Philadelphia Eagle fans? Okay, okay. Maybe that's where we draw the line. You know, there comes a point where you go, okay, too far. Anne Lamott said this. She said, said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. I'm not saying that we should never speak up. Or, or, or speak the truth. The Bible says we speak the truth in love. How could we do justice with our mouth shut? Of course we speak up. There is no, 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 no justice or kindness without truth. And so we speak the truth in love. Because when we speak the truth in anger, it just it, it dispels the truth. Ephesians says this, speaking the truth in love, we are growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So being able to speak the truth and to do so in love without anger is a sign of your maturity. It means you're growing up to become more like Christ. You're walking as Christ walked. So kindness cuts a pathway for the gospel And it displays, once again, the character of God. It gives people a taste of Eden. Romans 2, 4 says this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I love that. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Not shame, not guilt trips, not... Punishment, not rejection, not red-faced accusations, not finger-pointing. Those people don't... That does not lead people to repentance. Right? When, when are we ever going to learn that? It is the kindness of God. It is the kindness of God's people. And how can anyone experience the kindness of God through unkind believers? In 1967 uh doug nichols was doing missions in india and he contracted tuberculosis he was committed to sanitarium for for several months to heal a tb sanitarium there doug found himself uh lonely confused uh in a very difficult troubled place he didn't know the language of anybody else in there of the other patients and yet like the woman we we started off with he wanted to do something you know he's stuck in there with other sick people and he wanted to do something to show the love of jesus to others and, and all doug had in the sanitarium were a few gospel tracts. And fortunately, they are in the language of the the people there. And he tried to pass them out. He's like, I'll just get, you know, the word with these tracks, I Even though know, here, you can't speak to them. Uh, nobody wanted them. They're like, no, we don't want that. Then one night, Doug woke up at 2 a.m. and he's coughing so violently that uh, he, he could hardly catch his breath. And, and, and while he's having this coughing fit, he noticed this little old emaciated man across the, across the aisle trying to get out of bed. And the man was so uh, weak that he couldn't stand up. And, and he was just struggling and he whimpered and he tried again but, but to no avail. It was just a miserable sight. In the morning, Doug uh, realized that the man had been trying to get up in order to go to the bathroom. And the stench and the ward was terrible. And the other patients there were angry at the old man for not being able to contain himself, and so the nurse cleaned up the mess, and after she cleaned it up, she slapped the old man. The next night, Doug again sees the old man trying to get out of bed, but this time, uh, Doug got out of bed with him, and he went to the old man and he picked him up and he carried him because he couldn't walk, he carried him to the toilet. It was just a hole in the floor. And then he brought him back to his bed and this old emaciated man kissed Doug on the cheek and promptly went to sleep. Early the next morning, Doug woke up to a a steaming cup of tea sitting beside his bed. Uh, that another patient had m- made for him. And the patient pointed at his stack of tracks and was like, Can I have one of those? The next two days, one after another patient said, Could, could I have one of those tracks too? And the gospel spread throughout that sick ward. While in Babylon, be kind. Be kind. That sanatorium is kind of like the Babylon. It's kind of like the world we live in. And people are so broken and sick. Be kind. Be kind for the sake of the gospel. Be kind to the waitress. Even if you're getting bad service. Because you don't know. None of us know. Maybe that waitress was up all night with a sick child. And she had to leave that sick child at home with the sitter in order to come and serve your table. And we're angry about it because it's not up to par. Be kind. Be kind when you drive. <laughs> be kind to the poor. Be kind to the apathetic teenager who shows no interest. Be kind to the mother with the screaming kid in the grocery store. Be, be kind. Well, let's look at the last characteristic God seeks for us because uh, I, I believe it's the flip side of of being kind and loving towards one another. It's also included in the concept of Hesed, and that is to do justice. To do justice. Hmm. To do justice, I think, means to stick up for the world's underdog. That's my definition. Biblical justice is rooted in the character and the nature of God, just like all these things are. So it makes sense that if we are God's ambassadors in our, in our schools and in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, that he expects us to represent him by doing what he does and being like he is, which means to do justice. That's, that's one of the ways we show people what God is like. Cornell West says this, justice is what love looks like in public. The world is full of bullies. From the big kid taking the little kid's lunch money to the big corporation using overseas sweatshops filled with modern-day slaves to manufacture goods. God wants His people to stand up against the bullies of the world for the sake of the victims. That's what he's called us to. And justice comes in so many different flavors these days. It's all over the place. Greed instead of generosity. Trying to get the advantage or the upper hand over someone, especially who is weak and less fortunate than us. Cheating people. Classifying people. Judging people. Ignoring people. Ruling over people. Abusing people. There, there are... There are so many people, so many people, so many young people that are wounded by someone and and they are struggling with the idea, how could God have allowed that to happen to me? How can he be just if 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 and allow that to happen to me? Well, here's the the reality is that God is perfect in justice. Every single person will be held accountable. Without question, because God is just. God is going to make everything right. Justice will be done. Nobody gets away with anything. But what happens when the church becomes the bully? Or when Christians play the part of the bully? Wow, this is what so many young people are seeing, tasting, and, and, and hearing, right? Recently, uh, in the last uh, five, ten years, we've seen celebrity pastors, names that we all recognize and, and, and all enjoyed listening to, Mark Driscoll and, and James McDonald. most recent is Jason Meyer, who, who actually was the guy who filled the pulpit after John Piper resign. Every one of those guys, celebrity pastors, were either fired or resigned. You know why? For what? Bullying. They were bullying people in the church and they were bullying staff members. When the way of the lamb is replaced by the way of the dragon among leaders, the gospel is forever stained. And that's happening. When Christians... When we're just as racist as white supremacists, when when, uh, we use Jesus to endorse our political agendas, when we attempt to cover up sexual abuse in the church like Southern Baptists have done, when we blame the victims, or we cast uh, even more shame on the wrong people, are we not bullies? And so many precious young people and they've been bullied enough in the world. They've been, they've been wounded, they've been abused, they've been violated. And the church has got to be a safe haven. It's got to be a, a sanctuary of healing. It's got to be a taste of Eden. It's got to be. God's always been for the, the underdog Always, he always takes the side of the oppressed. In every case, he takes the side of the weak, the poor, the forgotten, the abused, the powerless, and and he wants to do that through us. I told you to to uh, to hold your finger at Isaiah 55. Now I'll turn there and then go over to Isaiah 58. That <laughs> was wrong. Isaiah 58. too much here for um, for this well there it is leave it to Tom Tom got it up Look, turn there anyway Uh, uh, verses 1 through 12 I want to look at this and I want to look at it in pieces okay we're going to look at the whole text but I just want to look at it in pieces Isaiah 58 shout it out Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Why have they fasted, they say? Why have you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? So God's people, let's just stop here. God's people are apparently rebelling against God, right? But it sure doesn't look like that. I wouldn't call this rebellion. In fact, if you told me this describes Crestmon, I'd be like, yes, that's awesome. Notice what's up. These people, you seek me out, check They're eager to know my ways. Sounds good. They seek justice for themselves. Okay. They're fasting. They're praying. They're worshiping. They want God to come near. That all sounds good. What is the problem? We continue. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So so they're doing all these things, right? It all seems good, yet what they do on Sunday isn't playing itself out on Monday or the rest of the week. Because while they're fasting and they're seeking God, apparently they're exploiting their workers. They're they're cheating people. They're literally getting in fights. Uh, They are saints on Sunday and bullies on Monday through Saturday. And and they can't figure out why God isn't responding to their prayers and showing up at their worship service. Verse 5. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves, is it? Only for bowing one's head like a reed, for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? So they're like going, hey, we got a fast day. We, We got our worship day. And he's like, is is that what your Christianity is? Is that what your faith is? Just a day of the week for you to do these spiritual activities? Verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To let the chains of, to to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Do justice. Uh, don't, don't give me your, your, your spiritual activities one day a week and then be a bully the rest of the week. Do justice. Advocate for the least of these. Uh, be a friend to the poor, be a friend to the oppressed, the hungry, the naked, the people in your own family. That's what I want from you. And then check this out, verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear, and then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And when you call, the Lord will answer, and you will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spin yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. And you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild their ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. You were called a repairer of broken walls and a restorer of streets with dwellings. (laughs) So, So basically he's going... Do justice, and then revival comes. Do justice, and then your prayers become something I have jumped to answer. Do justice, and I will run to you. Do justice, and you will be like a well-watered garden in a parched land. Do you see what happens when the church repents of bullying and turns to do injustice, God shows up. And there's healing. And there's answered prayer. And there's spiritual power. And God's people become like a well-watered garden in a scorched land. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a return back to Eden. I mean, we're in the scorched land. We've been in the scorched land ever since we got kicked out of the garden. But in Christ Jesus, we have been filled with his spirit, given the opportunity to stay in this world. He doesn't just simply zap us out of it. We're still here for a reason. And the reason we're here is to be his ambassadors in this Babylon. And what do we do? What do we do? How do we best represent him? Well, we simply walk with him. We walk humbly with him. And then out of that time spent with him, we develop a sense of just of kindness towards others. We, we become a loving people. And then when we see the things that are happening in the world, and, and maybe, you know, you, you think of on a social scale, but maybe in our school when some some kids getting bullied or, or at work, we take the place of the victim. We, we join up with the abused. We stand there with them. We stand between them and their their bully. That's what we're called to be. And when we do that, when we do that, we give the next generation the slice of home that they long for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this truth we thank you Father for Jesus because in Jesus we find one who walked humbly with God in Jesus we find one who showed kindness to the least of these to the people that the Pharisees showed the least kindness He stood in the gap between religious bullies and broken, sinful people who need hope. May we be that. And talk about doing justice. He fulfilled in our place. He bore in himself the justice we deserved. He satisfied the justice of God in our place by taking on God's wrath for our sin. What, what an incredible Savior. What, a, what an amazing people this has to form. Lord, I, I pray that in this, this day and age, Lord, here, here in our, our little church, Uh, Father, we don't seem to have to deal with some of these huge issues that the world is. But that doesn't mean we get to separate from it. That doesn't mean that we, we don't get to be a part of this justice mission in the world. We can pray, we can be kind in little ways, simple ways, everyday people. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would just help us to take up this uh, this call, this banner, and, and to wave it. That our God is just. That our God is loving and kind. He's even humble. And may we just kind of give people just a taste of that, Lord. Until we get home until we get home, until that's our our normal, until we don't have to worry about justice anymore because there's all justice will be satisfied. Till We don't have to worry about needing to be kind anymore because everyone will love one another with a perfect love as we are loved. But my goodness, that other one, for all eternity, we get to walk with you, humbly walk with you. So Father, help us just to to have a taste of that. Help us to, to provide for others a taste of what's coming. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.